And our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2, verses 17 through 23. So that's Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 17 through 23. It's on page 554 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, if you don't have a Bible of your own, a printed Bible, and you'd like one, take that Pew Bible as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have that. Um, and our, again, our text today is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. The teacher of Ecclesiastes writes these words. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity, a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to a man who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up in despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils under the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Bill. Hey, nothing says Mother's Day like a good reading from Ecclesiastes, right? Um, really, really uplifting. Well, as we uh, begin our time of teaching this morning, uh, I want to begin by asking everyone in the room to consider this question. What are your greatest achievements in life? What are your greatest achievements in life? What are some things that, that you've worked at that you look back on with, with pride? What, what ventures have you gone on that have, you would say have been successful? What, 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 what accomplishments stand out to you? Another way of asking it would be, what have you gained from your Monday work, whether it's your current Monday work uh, or work that you had in the past, whether it's paid work or unpaid work? What are your greatest achievements in life? Just give you a, a minute to let some of those come to mind. And as you think, uh, I just want to let you in on a, a few of my greatest achievements in life. So you can get to know me a little bit and just see uh, just how much I've accomplished. Some of the things that I look back on uh, that, that of accomplishing something I just never thought I would accomplish. Um, the first one that came to mind right off the bat uh, is I, I grew up in a small town in central Kansas called Sterling. Uh, and we had a local restaurant there. You might have heard of it. It's called Taco Bell. Um, and they had just come out with these things they called party packs, which were packs of, of 12 tacos. Uh, and this new menu item uh, prompted my small group at church uh, in our youth group to wonder, how many party packs could we collectively eat in one sitting? So naturally, eight of us, I think I have a picture of us up here. If you've been around Christ Community for a while, you might recognize Paul Brandis there in the center. Sorry, give me our Shawnee campus pastor. Uh, so eight of us, we, we showed up to Taco Bell, uh, and, and we ordered nine party packs, which if you're quick at math, that's 108 tacos. Plus they threw an extra one in because they were like, well, here you go. Here's a, here's a free taco. So 109, and we got working. Now the problem is some of my friends didn't carry their weight. So some people only locked out like seven or eight tacos, leaving Paul to eat 15 tacos. 
and leaving me to cram down 24. 24, that's two whole party packs. And you look at me and you're like, yeah, that actually kind of makes sense, dude. Um, but we did it. We accomplished it. We had 109 tacos. We were proud of it. But as I sat uh, on the toilet afterwards, as one does, <laughs> I couldn't help but think, yeah, we did it. But at what cost? All that effort, 109 tacos, but for what? What was the point? What did we really gain besides bragging rights and digestive issues? A couple years later, uh, I was still in high school, and I traveled with one of my friends to visit this very same Paul in Chicago. And the first night we were there, uh, we realized, uh, as we were sitting on the couch, that we both grew up loving the same video game, uh, which is Super Mario World on Super Nintendo. So naturally, that night, we were like, what if we tried to beat the whole thing in one sitting? So we spent the whole night completely ignoring my friend and Paul's wife and beat all of Super Mario World in one go. We were thrilled. Fast forward to the next night, we're sitting on the couch, and we both look at each other and we're like, I bet we could do it faster. And we did it. We just sent the second night, trying to beat the same game, just faster. And I'll let you fill in the gaps on how the rest of the week went. The whole week, five nights, and our goal was to do it in under an hour, and on the very last night, we finally beat it in 57 minutes. It was an incredible achievement that we put a lot of effort into, but as I look back, I asked the same question that I asked of tacos. Like, yeah, it's a great story. It's a great memory. It's a number that I can point to and say, yeah, we did that. But we like severely neglected our friends and spent hours playing the same game over and over. Like, does all that time that I spent matter for anything in the end? Let me give you uh, one more. This one might be my crowning achievement. Uh, it definitely took the most work and effort. Uh, it also happened when I was in high school, so the more I'm sharing this, the more I'm realizing that that's when I peaked, apparently. <laughs> my senior calculus class was assigned a very simple project. Uh, in groups of two or three, just make a short creative video that explains one theorem of calculus. Simple enough, right? So my friend Jake and I, who, who only all we know how to do is make things way more work than they're worth, uh, we had a great idea. We were like, let's make a music video. So we literally, we wrote and recorded music. We gave our characters backstories. We filmed the whole video. We threw a little bit of calculus in there on the side. And after weeks, we finally had a finished project just in time. And I am not exaggerating when I say that the video we ended up with was 27 minutes and 30 seconds long. Here's a screenshot of it. Please don't go look this up on YouTube. 27 minutes and 30 seconds, about two minutes of it was about the fundamental theorem of calculus and the other 25, I have no idea. <laughs> it is the most over of the top that I've gone on anything in my life. I mean, even the name, you can see it there is, how is your day going? It's going swell, much obliged. Like, that's too much. <laughs> and when it came time to present our videos in class, the other two groups' videos added up to three minutes combined, and we forced our whole class to watch 27 minutes of this garbage. And as we sat there and forced our class to watch the entire thing, many of shots were just like a field in the country for minutes on end. I was like, what were we thinking? Like, this is the absolute epitome of just pointless effort. Now, it's, it's easy to see and to admit the futility of, of silly ventures like eating tacos or beating a video game or creating an unnecessarily long music video. But if I'm honest, I've asked myself the exact same questions about the work that matters most to me. I've asked the exact same questions about the things that I've put serious effort, blood, sweat, and tears into in my 28 years of life. 
And I'm confident I'm not the only person in this room. In fact, I'd venture to guess that everyone here this morning, whether you love your Monday work or hate it, whether it's your, your dream job or a dead-end job, whether you feel like your work is, is recognized by others or underappreciated, whether it's paid, it's unpaid, whether you feel when you think back to those accomplishments like you've achieved a lot or a little, you have probably wondered from time to time, what's the point? Is there any meaning in this at all? Does anything I've built or created or accomplished put effort toward even matter in the end? Is any of my work more important than tacos and music videos? And that question actually gets to the heart of what the author of Ecclesiastes is asking. The author of Ecclesiastes, he identifies himself as Kohelet. That's in our English, Q-O-H-E-L-E-T, Kohelet. Uh, And that word just means in Hebrew to gather or to assemble. And, And this description makes sense because what he's been doing is gathering experiences and assembling experiments that explore this basic question. Is there any point to life at all? Is there any point to life at all? and gathered these experiences, and now he's assembling and gathering people, uh, including us with him this morning, to, to tell them what he's found. I was, I was studying at a coffee shop one day for this sermon, and the barista saw my commentary and said, uh, you know what, Ecclesiastes was the first book of the Bible I ever read. And I was like, really? And you kept reading? <laughs> like, you're, you're still a Christian now? Right? Because this book is difficult. And the outlook at paints on life is incredibly bleak. And if you've been reading along with us in Ecclesiastes, you've probably felt this, right? Kohelet, he can be hard to understand. His thoughts can seem a bit scattered. At times, he even appears like he's just inconsistent, saying one thing and the opposite thing. Sometimes he leaves you feeling confused, like, I don't know if I really know what this guy actually believes. <laughs> He's a guy who, who wears his emotions on his sleeve. He, he comes across as someone who's just like, like restless, turning this way, turning that way, trying to find something to hold on to, something that promises fulfillment and happiness and actually delivers on that promise. In this book, he's calling everything into question, exploring every aspect of life, asking, is there any point at all? And as difficult as that can be to follow, it's actually also incredibly relatable to our human experience, isn't it? Maybe one of the reasons my barista kept reading was because of how well Ecclesiastes told the truth about life and how futile it seems sometimes. Because, friends, we know what it's like to feel like Kohelet. At least I do. (laughs) To ask these hard questions about every facet of our lives. Our favorite music and and TV shows and novels and poems and art all explore these, these very same realities that plague us. And in the passage we're looking at this morning, Kohelet is turning away from pleasure, which we looked at last week, and towards our work, our Monday lives, what we do with the the majority of our time. Those very things that we pour ourselves fully into, the ways that we contribute, the, the hard daily grind of the things that we pour our blood, sweat, and tears into. He's turning toward our work. And spoiler alert, his conclusion's pretty dark. It goes something like this. If work is our only hope, we toil in vain. If work is our only hope, we toil 
in vain. Let's look at how he gets there. Would you turn with me to Ecclesiastes 2, and we'll start here in verse 17. Here's how he starts. He says, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun. So the emotional level of the book is like ratcheted up to 10 here right off the bat. He says, I hated life. I hated my life. Why? Because everything under the sun was grievous to me. Now, he says this over and over, this phrase, everything done under the sun in the book. When he says that, he's just talking about like all human activity, everything that we do as human beings. And he says that those things are grievous to him. They grieve his heart. The Hebrew word that's used there for grieve is the Hebrew word ra, which literally means evil. So he's saying all human activity is evil, so I hate my life. Kohelet sounds like a super great hang. Now, why does this grieve him so much? Why does it fill him with so much hatred? He uses a couple more of his favorite terms. He says everything is vanity and a striving after the wind. That word that the ESV translates vanity uh, is the Hebrew word hevel. That's H-E-V-E-L, hevel. One helpful image for understanding this idea of hevel is to think of a mirage. I think I have a picture up here of a mirage. Think about a mirage. A mirage is something that looks promising, right? Like it looks like it will satisfy what you long for the most. It looks like it will get you out of the weariness and the desolation of the desert. So you chase that mirage, but as soon as you get there, you find out it's not really there. It vanished just as quickly as it appeared. It's a mirage. It's heaven. That's how Kohelet describes basically everything in life in this book. It's like trying to be a shepherd, but instead of sheep, you have wind, and you're trying to contain that wind. That's impossible. It's futile. It's fleeting. It's a mirage. And the more he sees this perspective on life, the more Kohelet starts to hate it. And that hatred extends now to his work. He concludes that if work is our only hope, we toil in vain. And he gives us three reasons for this conclusion. Let's keep reading in verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil, in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is also vanity. So here we see that the first reason that work is just as much of a mirage as everything else is that from Kohelet's perspective, we toil in vain because success outlives us. We toil in vain because success outlives us. The reason he's distressed is that any success he gains through his hard work in life will be passed on to someone else when he dies. In other words, even if his work pays off, even if he achieves great things, they slip out of his grasp as soon as he dies, and it will be passed on to someone else. Now, this is concerning to him because he doesn't know what that person who comes after him will be like. He's like, will he be wise or will he be a fool? Is there any point for, to build, work really hard to build something if the person who takes over when you're gone is just going to throw it all away? Maybe he's, was he wise? Is he going to be a fool? I think that's what Bill thinks every time he lets me get up here and preach. He's like, I've built so much, and like, what if this guy's a fool? 
We've seen this happen in our world before, though, right? One of my, my favorite novels is a book called Jaber Crow by, by Wendell Berry. And Berry, he, he spends most of his time writing about this small farming community in, in Kentucky. And one of the saddest parts of the book is when he talks about the Keith family. The Keith family is a family that built their farm from the ground up. They poured everything into their farm. They toiled to make it what it was and cause it to flourish. And your heart breaks with them in the book when they watch their son-in-law take on debt, destroy the land, and run the very farm they built into the ground. See, the bottom line goes like this. No matter how much we succeed in life, someone else both gets to enjoy it and possibly destroy it. Kohelet continues down this track, and it only gets worse uh, in verse 20. He says, so I turned about, it's like he's turning around, like trying to find something. He turned about, and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who didn't toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. Notice how the language intensifies more here. He started out with hatred and resentment, but now he's in a place of despair. In fact, the language makes us think that he turns almost intentionally to a place of despair. Because what's the point? What's the point of of working so hard to gain wisdom and knowledge and skill at your craft, to really gain mastery, only to pass it on to someone else? Not only is this vapor, not only is this a mirage, it's evil, he says. It's morally wrong. His logic is simple. My toil is in vain because my success, whatever I get, will last longer than I will. And when I die, it's completely out of my control. See, that's his real problem. He isn't ultimately in control of any of the outcomes of his work. He doesn't have control, and that fills him with despair. Our success will always outlive us. He goes on in verse 22. What has a man... From all the toil and striving of heart which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Here's the second reason Kohelet has come to, pro- to see the promise that we can place our hope in our work as just a mirage. He says we toil in vain because striving overwhelms us. We toil in vain because striving overwhelms us. Here's the SparkNotes version of this point. Work is hard. Don't know if you've tried working lately. It's hard. Not only is it hard, it can be exhausting, right? Draining. It can overwhelm us at times. I think that that Robert Alter's translation of the Hebrew Bible captures the tone of these verses even better. Here's how he translates this. For what does a man have from all his toil, from his heart's care, that he toils under the sun. All his days are pain and worry is his business. At night as well, his heart does not rest. This too is mere breath or hevel or a mirage. That phrase where he says his heart's care is meant to draw out the intimate care and heart that many of us rightly pour into our Monday work. And yet how many of us can't relate to these descriptions? His days are pain. Worry is his business. At night, his heart does not rest. 
when we're anticipating a difficult conversation with a coworker the next day, when we just can't get the kids to sleep through the night, when we're worried that an entrepreneurial venture could dissolve at any moment, when our heart is weighed down with the fear that we have nothing left to contribute in our retirement years, when we're preparing to preach a difficult passage in Ecclesiastes, maybe that's just me, toil can bring struggle, heartache, hurt, anxiety, restlessness, sleeplessness. And this kind of striving for success and achievement also overwhelms us because it seems like it's never going to stop, right? Alter's translation says, all his days are pain and worry. Work, it, it seems endless. As one great modern philosopher put it, mail never stops. And Newman isn't the only one who tapped into this idea. Consider these harrowing lyrics from one popular song about work from Huey Lewis in the news. Some days won't end ever. Some days pass on, I'll be working here forever, at least until I die. That's how it feels sometimes, right? Yeah, Huey Lewis and Kohelet would have gotten along like just great with each other. Whether it's Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 or shows like The Office, we connect with these cultural explorations of our work not only because they're catchy or they're funny, but because they resonate with our experience of the apparently endless daily grind of our toil and striving. Other artists explore this reality in even more chilling ways. I, I read an article recently about uh, an exhibit from two Chinese artists who displayed a robotic arm that was programmed to use a variety of motions to keep a, a pool of red liquid contained. And they noticed that over time, the longer they kept doing these tasks, the movements of the robot changed slightly. And here's one person's analysis of why said over time, the robot arm had slowed down as if it was tired of the eternal task it was programmed to perform. Tired of the eternal task it was programmed to perform. What a picture of how so many of us feel. Work seems endless, and it's tiresome. And so we ask, just like the Kohelet, what for? What do we get from this overwhelming striving? What do we gain from our blood, sweat, and tears? How can we spend so much time for something that often yields us so little discernible fruit? And hidden here is the third reason that Kohelet implies that work is a mirage. It goes like this. We toil in vain because satisfaction outpaces us. It's always one step ahead of us. This is a theme that he's already hit on multiple times in this book, but from here, this is the form that it kind of takes on in this section. When we achieve something like really special, even when we gain something from our ceaseless striving, there's always something more, isn't there? There's always something more to be truly satisfied. We'll never be fully fulfilled by what we've gained because satisfaction is always one step ahead of us. Now, I don't think anyone has captured this quite as brilliantly as the actor Jim Carrey at a recent award presentation. Take a look at this video. From the upcoming film, True Crimes, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going 
to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. For what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. <laughs> but these are important, these awards. Isn't that good? Carrie's tongue-in-cheek delivery is like super on brand for Kohelet. In some ways, his writing drips of this kind of sarcasm. But both, in kind of a backhanded way, are warning about putting our hope in achievement because it will never really fulfill us. If work is our only hope, we toil in vain because success outlives us, striving overwhelms us, satisfaction outpaces us. And what we're left asking is that favorite question of every kid. Why? Why do we have this on-again, off-again relationship with our work? Why does it bother us so much that meaning can be so hard to find in our labor? And to see that, we actually have to, to zoom out a bit from the perspective of Ecclesiastes. See, Ecclesiastes is a part of a section of our Bibles that we call the wisdom literature. The Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Job. And what the wisdom books do is something like this. They take the, the overarching themes of Scripture and they bring them into the ordinary stuff of our daily lives. Wisdom books take, take the big story of God and some, in some ways demystify it and, and bring it down, making it practical in the murkiness of our lives. That's why a book like Ecclesiastes is so in touch with the darkness and the weariness and the jadedness of life. But what that also means is that books like Ecclesiastes need to be read against the backdrop of the whole redemptive narrative of God. And here's what we see when we zoom out to view that narrative as a whole. What we see is that we were made for meaningful work. We were made for meaningful work. Look with me at, at Genesis 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, and male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the parallel account of this passage in Genesis 2, we read this, that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So from the very beginning of this story, God made us to have dominion over the world. He made us to create, to build, to explore, to care, to labor with purpose, with joy. We were made for meaningful work. But then if you know the story, you know that with Genesis 3 comes the fall of human beings, and with that comes a curse on our work, that our work will now be filled with painful toil. The book of Ecclesiastes uses a very specific word for this kind of work. It's the Hebrew word amal, which literally means toil. It's used eight times in our passage this morning. It's kind of like a drumbeat of amal, amal, amal reinforcing his message of the, the endless repetition of our striving. And see, what we have to understand about Hebrews, they had many words for work. And this word amal 
was a very particular kind of work. It's the kind of striving that the curse of Genesis 3 brings as a result of the fall. It's the toil, it's the restless work, it's the frustrating work, it's the painful work, it's the sorrowless work, it's the gainless toil. It's a result of the fall in Genesis 3. Now here's the tension then that lies at the heart of everything we've explored so far with Kohelet this morning. This is important. We feel so deeply the meaninglessness of our work because we were made for meaningful work. The reason we feel the fruitlessness of our striving is precisely because we were made to be fruitful. We feel so acutely the pain of our toil because we have a deep God-given impulse to purposely create and cultivate and contribute to the flourishing of our world. It's hardwired into our DNA. And that's why Kohelet's experiment leads him to such a place of despair. It's precisely because he sees the potential in fulfilling work. One scholar said that Kohelet's strong emotion is conditioned by the intensity of his hopes, by the strengths of his desires, by the persuasiveness of the promises that motivated his hard work. It's the early persistent love for these things that prompt his present feelings of being spurned and betrayed by them. And the same is true for you and me. In the moments when we resent our work, it's because our work, both paid and unpaid, is supposed to matter. It's supposed to be purposeful and to give us life and joy. The entire narrative of God bears witness to these two realities, that our Monday work is often toilsome, and our Monday work matters immensely. So where does that leave us in our journey with Kohelet? You might be asking yourself now, what's the point of this sermon? I already knew that. (laughs) What's the point of this passage? Why is it even in my Bible? I think we need to do two things with our passage this morning. The first we've done super thoroughly. It's sit in the murkiness with Kohelet. It's let God give us permission to lament the pain and futility we often feel in our Monday lives. Sit in the murkiness. Here's the second thing I think we're supposed to do with this, though. I think we're supposed to take a passage like this and lean in to the hope we have in Christ. I think we're supposed to lean in to the hope we have in Christ. Yes, Ecclesiastes wants to make it abundantly clear that if work is our only hope, we toil in vain. But it's also setting us up to see the end game of God's big story. That if redemption is our only hope, our labor is not in vain. If redemption is our only hope, our labor is not in vain. We live in a culture, right, that holds up work and success and achievement and leaving a mark and making a name for yourself, making a difference in the world. And it holds all those things up and says, worship this. Worship this. This will deliver you. This will give you meaning. If you just have enough ambition. And Ecclesiastes is meant to warn us that we can't view work that way. It's all too easy to make an idol out of our work, to worship it as if it's our only hope, as if it can deliver on the promises to make us whole. And just like Jim Carrey reminded us, it can't. If work and achievement and success at school, at work, in the home are what we look to for happiness and meaning and fulfillment, we're going to be left with disappointment and despair. I've heard story after story after story of high school student who's worked and worked and worked and worked and that pain literally killed them. 
it's only going to leave us with disappointment and despair. As my favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien, warns one of his characters, he says, love not too well the work of your hands or the devices of your heart. Remember that your true hope comes from the West. If we idolize our work above all else, it will let us down. But if we remember that our hope comes from somewhere else, we can labor with purpose and meaning and hope. One of my favorite shows is a TV show called Parks and Recreation. And Parks and Rec is a great example of what we should do with this passage because it has these two antithetical characters who, who help us see what God is inviting to in response. Because first, you have Leslie Nope, the star of the show. And Leslie is obsessed with her work. She gets all of her value from her success, from her achievements. In many ways, she's someone who worships her work, right? And then there's April Ludgate. A young, disenfranchised woman who couldn't care less about really anything, but especially her work. In many ways, she's Kohelet 2.0. And the thing is, we're not supposed to leave Ecclesiastes as a Leslie, idolizing our work to the point that it consumes us. But we're also not meant to leave Ecclesiastes as an April, in so much pessimism that the meaning of our work, that we give up on it altogether. There's a third way. There's a third way. There's a remarkable passage in Isaiah 65 that gives us this vision. This is a vision about the future, about the coming of Christ, about the new creation at the end of the age. And here's what it says. It says, They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. That's what Kohelet was worried about. They shall not plant and another eat. For the, like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands, and they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the lords and their descendant with them. They shall not labor in vain. They shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Like I said, this passage is looking ahead to when all things will be made new in the new creation. If there's one thing that's clear, it's that every part, every single part of creation that was ruined by the fall will be redeemed by the Father. Every part, and that includes our work. You'll notice here that the word is not toil, but labor. It's a different Hebrew word. We will labor without toil in the new heavens and new earth. The narrative of redemption boldly claims that somehow, some way, our work batters both now for human flourishing in the present and in the future. That when our work is in the Lord, when our hope is in the resurrection, more than anything else, we contribute to the common good now and to the coming new creation. Friends, this is not a mirage. This is true hope. This is a confidence in a future reality that we can lean into to give us energy today. Tolkien also wrote a poem called Mythopoeia, defending the idea of sub-creation, that we're called to create in the same way that our master created us. And I found these lines about the end game so brilliant. He said, the right has not decayed. That's our right to, to work, to create. We make still by the law in which we are made. Then looking on the blessed land, we'll see that all is as it is and yet made free. Salvation changes not, nor yet destroys garden or gardener, children or their toys. When all is made new, both the worker and the work will endure.
Something of the things that we create will last with us. Now, I don't know if there's a Super Nintendo in heaven. I have a feeling that Taco Bell is more of like a purgatory kind of thing. Joking. And I'm confident that our music video is as far away from God as possible uh, in the new heavens and new earth. But I'm sure that because of the resurrection, something of my labor in life will last. And yours will too. Which gives us a helpful corrective to our author this morning. Because he's inclined to throw his hands up in the air and give up. Friends, it actually isn't a bad thing to leave the fruit of your labor to someone else after you die. It's not a bad thing. And even if you leave it to a fool, even if it's thrown away completely, we have the promise here and the redemption of all things that something of our good labor will remain with us after all until the very end. And here's the remarkable thing. On this side of the resurrection, this is also our present reality, not just our future reality. If you are in Christ, if you know Jesus, you are part of an enduring kingdom that's already here. Friends, Christ is redeeming our work now. He's at work now, not just then. You are a co-laborer and a co-ruler with Christ for the good of creation now, which means your labor, friends, if your hope is in the right place, is not in vain here, today, in the present, as well as in the future. And when we work with this hope in mind, we're unable to approach our Monday work in a very different way. So I want to ask you three quick questions to help us respond and reflect appropriately on his musings this morning, to lean in a little bit, some steps to lean into this third way of approaching our work. Here's the first question. What human working limits do you need to embrace? We aren't meant to live like robotic arms, overwhelmed by our striving, working ourselves into the ground, growing tired of this endless task. Friends, we were creatures. We're made with limits that are given to us by God. Are there ways you've been trying to push the envelope on your limits in work that have been detrimental to your health or detrimental to your family, maybe even detrimental to your faith? What limits do you need to embrace this week? What limits do you need to embrace? Here's a second question. What outcomes do you need to surrender? What outcomes do you need to surrender? You, do, do you find yourself struggling with control like Kohelet does? Are there outcomes or, or achievements or potential areas of success that are keeping you up at night because you're so anxious about what if I can't control it? What if I can't grasp it? You're afraid you might lose it? What outcomes do you need to surrender control of and trust God with? What outcomes do you need to surrender to God? So what limits do you need to embrace? What outcomes do you need to, to surrender? Here's the third. What good have you been given in your work that you can enjoy? What good have you been given that you can enjoy? How can you train your eyes to, to see and enjoy the good God has given you? It's far easier to see all the hard stuff than all the good stuff. How can you see the traces of grace in the toil of the grind? Are there things that you have a hard time appreciating because you've taken them for granted or because you're always chasing after more like Jim Carrey. What good have you been given in your work that you can enjoy 
And how can you enjoy it more fully this week? I encourage you to reflect on these questions as you go throughout your week. Because when we actually embrace our limits, when we actually surrender control of our outcomes, when we train ourselves to enjoy the good God has given us, we are able to lean into this hope of redemption that we have in Christ. And when that is truly our hope, we have assurance that in the middle of, even in the middle of the pain and the hardship, even in our darkest moments when we question the point of our work, our labor is not in vain. As I worked on this sermon, a song kept playing over and over in my mind, and I want to leave us with these lyrics to close. It's a song by the, the band King's Kaleidoscope, and it offers us this very hope against the bleakest human circumstances and experiences. Here's what it says. The song goes like this. Living for experiences, I romanticize thrill. I maximize my achievements, but I'm not satisfied still. I'm realizing that all my striving is chasing wind. It's chasing wind. But you freed me so I can just be. Nothing to prove, nothing to lose. When redemption is our only hope, we have the freedom to work with joy because we have nothing to prove before our Father and nothing to lose before our Father either. Can we pray? God, honestly, so many times, even recently, I've sat overwhelmed, restless, frustrated, and wondered if there's any point to the things that I'm doing. I've felt deeply that toil, and I know so many of us have. And God, what I pray this morning is that in a very countercultural way, we would resist the temptation towards laziness and idleness, and we would resist the temptation toward workaholism and worship of our work. That somehow you would enable our people through your spirit in this room this morning to go into whatever awaits us on Monday, whether it's the work that we're doing in our retirement, whether it's the work that we do as a stay-at-home parent, whether it's the work that we do at a company that we started or a job that we hate, would you enable us to sit with the toil, to lament it, but to see the hope of our labor? Help us in our pride to release control, to embrace our limits, and to help us see the good that you've given us, even in the hardest moments. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of his Spirit. Amen.